Om Sahana Bhavatu Sahana Punaktu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvinavati Tamastu Mavid Vashavahai Om Shanti 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 Om May Brahman protect us May Brahman nourish us. May Brahman give us strength and clarity. May there be no misunderstanding between us. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Beautiful music, by the way. Nicely rendered. Beautiful composition. Thank you. Well, it's a privilege to be here today. I was, uh, I've been here for a very long time. I was initiated right about here uh, 42 years ago on Sri Ramakrishna's puja, so this place for me will always be a place of pilgrimage, and to me it's always a special grace just to be able to be in this building. So for that, thank you. Uh, I wanted to talk today on asking the big questions, Uh, and the Katha Upanishad is a great place to start with that because it does ask big questions. And what I particularly like, okay, whose cell phone's going off? Uh, spiritual seekers begin their search by first asking the big questions. And a good place to look on asking the big questions is the Kata Upanishad, where both the, both the seeker and the questions that he asks are really striking in their depth and their applicability because they're just as applicable now as they were 2,000 years ago, which is why it's such a good read even today. Uh, you all are familiar with the Katha Upanishad. It was particularly beloved by Swami Vivekananda. So part of our tradition in the Vedana societies is to read it every um, breakfast on Swami Vivekananda's puja day, where he has his breakfast and read to him the Katha Upanishad. So you're all familiar with it. I'm going to tell you things you already know. But the wonderful thing about any good story is it always bears repeating, and we can all get more out of it by just listening to it more and getting more out of it. So asking questions is what children do. And they say, what is that? Why is that? Why? Why? And as we get older, we stop asking questions. And why do we stop asking questions? Well, sometimes it's because we don't really want to know, or we don't really care. Or the other thing is we just get so taken up by our daily routine that we just so get preoccupied by our day-to-day, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, we just stop thinking of asking anything more than just what, what we have to do next and how long has it been since I checked my email. We, we get so tied up in our routine that we don't go any further. But asking questions and asking the big questions is a very important thing and it's particularly important in the Hindu tradition. Asking big questions is is always where our spiritual life begins. And even as our spiritual life goes on, we keep having to ask ourselves the questions because we want to make sure that we're on the right track, that we're not getting off our goal. So what I mean by the big questions is what we call the existential questions, the questions of life and death. Why am I here? Where am I going? What is this all about? Uh, what is the point of all this? That's what I mean by the big questions. So if we're seeking wisdom, and if we're really seeking truth, then asking questions about the meaning of our our life as a whole is, is really a part of our spiritual search. And once we've found some answers that we think are genuine and we think are viable, 
then we need to put the answers into practice. We can't just keep asking questions like, oh, there's a good question. Let me think of another question. There's a good question. If we just go around and around in that loop, then it's just intellectual play. It has nothing to do with our spiritual life. It's just ego building. So once we get some answers that sound good, then we have to put them into practice. And this is what we see in the Kata Upanishad, because we see some great questions and we get some great answers. Um, the thing with the Kata Upanishad, too, is it says, okay, here's, here's the question, here's the answer, now go to work. And that's wonderful for uh, an example of that as well. So a lot of times when we're on our spiritual life, we complain that we're not getting anywhere. But the Kata Upanishad tells us that spiritual life is serious. It's like walking the sharp edge of a razor. So if we're, we seem to be getting sidetracked or we seem to be getting nowhere, the Kata pretty much lets us know that we have only ourselves to blame because uh, we can only get out of it what we put into it, garbage in, garbage out. So if we put in the requisite amount of attention and seriousness, we'll, we'll get out what we need to get out. It really depends on our seriousness and really how much we're interested in doing it. So if we're serious about being a spiritual seeker, and obviously all of us here in this room are because it's Sunday, you don't have to be here. <laughs> it's, you know, it's Super Bowl. You, it's Super Bowl Sunday. You guys could be home having your pretzels and beer. You don't have to be here. So I assume that everyone here is, is serious about their spiritual life because this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a busy life, and people really guard their time carefully. So if we're serious, and then we're very lucky to be part of a tradition that has established guidelines, and if we follow those guidelines and put in the requisite amount of time and energy, then it's pretty much foolproof we will get the results that the Kata Upanishad says that we will get. So we begin by questions, then we move by searching for answers, and we have to get the answer from the right person. So if, if we have a plumbing problem, we don't call the computer guy. If we have a computer problem, we don't call Barack Obama. We have to get the right question to the right person, and in spiritual life, that means to an illumined soul a person who has walked the path of truth, because even a thief needs a good teacher. So to, be, to have a spiritual life, we search for the questions, we get the answers, and we direct our questions and get the answers from a proper spiritual authority, one who has walked the path of truth and can say, this is what you have to do, you have to follow this way. So once we get answers that satisfy us both intellectually and spiritually, we shouldn't be stupid. We should not follow just anybody, but really watch the person and see how they live their lives. And so once we are genuinely convinced that this person is telling us the truth and can lead us to the truth, and this person is living a life of truth, then we need to follow their instructions and follow it seriously. And what's great about the kata is it shows us this whole scenario, and it does it in a very engaging way because the kata is exactly what it, what it says it is. It's a kata. It's a story. It's a really nice story. And so once upon a time, there was a boy by the name of Nachiketa. And Nachiketa was the son of a great sage by the name of Vajrashravas, which is the most unfortunate name every year. Someone really gets tripped on that name when they read it in the temple. Anyway, Vajrashravas, who was an ancient sage who came from a line of ancient sages, a long lineage, who, and they were famed for their charity. Now, Nachiketa's father, we find as we open the kata that he's in the, he's in the middle of doing this sacrifice. And this sacrifice was, was part, of the, part of the thing, and the sacrifice mandated that you had to give away everything you had. 
And so it's a great feat of charity, and the Upanishad tells us that Vajra Shravas is doing this because he wants, to, he wants to gain things in heaven. He's looking for rewards in heaven. Now, the Upanishad also tells us that Nachiketa is young. It says he's Kumar. He hasn't attained physical maturity yet. He's a kid, but he's a very wise child. Even though he hasn't attained physical maturity, he's really wise beyond his years. So he's watching with great attention as his father is performing this great feat of charity. But Nachiketa notices that his father, you know, despite all this, the, the big fall to roll about it being a great act of charity, his father is only giving away what he doesn't want to have in the first place. He's giving away cows that are too old to, to, to eat, they're too old to breed, they're sick. They're, they're, so he's basically, it's like the bad garage sale. He's just giving away what he doesn't want in the first place. So Nachiketa is, is observing this, and he's really aware of the fact that his father's being a hypocrite. So he says to his father, Father, to whom do you give me? Well, this, uh, his father really doesn't like this, so his father doesn't respond at all. So second time he says it again, Father, to whom do you give me? No response. Now it's important that the Upanishad mentions that in order for him to say this to his father, it says, the Upanishad tells us that Shraddha, entered Nachiketa's heart. Now, Shraddha is often translated as faith, but it's a really thin translation because it's by no stretch of the imagination does Shraddha mean blind faith or blind belief. Shraddha means strength. It means faith in oneself. It means the strength to be truthful. Uh, Shankara defines Shraddha as astikya bhuti, or that the totality of all auspicious attitudes. So it has that sense of enormous faith in oneself, strength, the strength to be truthful, to really approach life with boldness. And so Shraddha answers his heart, and he starts asking his father the questions. And so by the third time, okay, and we're thinking, wow, this is some impudent kid here who's talking to his father, the great sage, this way, but we have to realize, too, that if the Upanishad says that Shraddha is, is, has entered his heart, then he, he can't be impudent at the same time. It's more, it's that directness and the boldness that we're finding with Shraddha. So the third time that he says to his father, Father, to whom do you give me? His father answers with anger. His father's humiliated. His father comes from a long line of sages, and his father knows in his heart that he's being a hypocrite. He, the, the Upanishad lets us know that he has disciples. It's in more or less the text. So he's a, he's a great sage himself, but somehow has deviated from the spiritual path. What he's done is he wanted to keep the best for himself. He didn't want to give it away. So first on the spiritual path, he has selfishness and greed under his heart. So he's taken sort of a deviation from his path. He's kind of angled off. Well, as he's angled off there, that allows other problems to come in. So once this angling in his spiritual life has started, then anger can come in. So anger, his son, his being, how my dear son that say that to me? So his father says, you I give unto death. Yeah, harsh, harsh. How sending, who would willingly send one child to, to their death? But you see, the Upanishad shows us because his spiritual life is angled off like that, he's become deluded.
And once you started on that slippery slope of greed, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness, then anger can enter in and anger overtakes us like that and before he knows it, he's sent, us off, sent off to death and he regrets it as soon as he said it, but the words have left his mouth. What can he do? It's just like the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which again reminds us, it's like all of a sudden everything is lost, you've lost your reason, everything is gone, and it's like, how did that happen? By first, by letting that one little thing angle off our spiritual life. Then all sorts of problems start. So now the normal reaction to being sent to death by one's father would be anger. That would be how most of us would respond. But, but Nachiketa is a very wise young man. And instead of responding in anger, he instead asks questions to himself. He takes the question himself and poses them in his own heart and says, among many, that is, among many of his father's sons or disciples, I'm the first, or if not the first, then in the middle, and I'm certainly not the last. What purpose of Yama, that is, the king of death, will be accomplished by my father's giving me to him? So it's like, instead of responding, it's like, okay, well, you die too. It's, it's like, okay, let's think about this. But we need to take into consideration here what's very important, which is Nachiketa's sense of self, self-worth. Again, that's Shraddha. His sense of, he tries to give a really honest assessment of, of, his, of his own worth and of his own values. His first response is, I'm the first. Well, maybe I'm not the first, but I'm not the last. I'm certainly in the middle. In other words, he really thinks of himself as a worthy spiritual aspirant, a worthy person. So he, he takes that into himself and, yes, yes, I, I am worth something. I'm not chopped liver. I'm good. I'm good. I can realize the truth. And the only one who can stop me is myself, which is, exact, which is why Swami Vivekananda loved this Upanishad so much. Yes. I can realize that I can do it. That wonderful sense of self-esteem that does not go into egotism. That really true assessment of, of where we are on our spiritual path. Because if we think we're weak and helpless, then weak and helpless we will certainly be. So because Nachiketa doesn't want to add untruthfulness to his father's long list of what's gone wrong, he goes down to the king of death to see Yama. Well, Yama's a very busy guy. You know, people are dying all over the place. So he's there three days and three nights, no food and no water. Okay, well, he's just sitting patiently waiting. Well, Yama's attendants are getting really worried about this, so by the time Yama comes back, they say, wait a minute, before you go in there, you've got a young boy there, a Brahmin boy, who is like a flame of fire. He has stayed here for three days and three nights without your hospitality, and you know, you better be careful because unless you, unless you treat him well and, and be extremely cordial to him, you're going to lose all that you've gained because he's a Brahmin boy. Now, this isn't just, you know, another riff on the caste system. What's important to remember here is that the Brahmins were the repository of all spiritual learning. All the scriptures, the shastras, are, are embodied in this group of people. So what you have here is, uh, is the embodiment of wisdom and learning. You don't treat that lightly. These, they have to be treated with, with respect. So Yama takes notice of this and says, Welcome, <laughs> welcome. You have been here without my hospitality for three days and three nights. For this, I give you three boons. Well, Nachiketa is, if we didn't know Nachiketa wasn't smart by now, we do by now because of his first boon, in which he says, Oh, death, may my father be calm, cheerful, 
and free from anger toward me. May he recognize me and greet me as before when I've been sent home by you. In other words, he wants to get out of there alive. He doesn't want his father to see him as ghost or ashes. So now it's like he gets two boons in one. And his father, he knows that his father, we also see the thoughtfulness of the child. He knows that his father must be deeply regretting what he did. He doesn't want his father to be sick with worry. He doesn't want his father to die of a heart attack by the time he gets home. So he wants his, wa- his father to be happy and to be happy to see him again. He doesn't want to deal with his father's anger either. So Yama happily grants this boon. Now the second boon, Nachiketa requests Yama to teach him the fire sacrifice that leads to heaven. And so Yama gives all these um, instructions and Nachiketa follows them completely, perfectly. So he does this whole fire ceremony and Yama is greatly pleased. He's so pleased that he grants him an extra boon because you've done this so perfectly, I, I grant you the boon that this for, forever now shall be known as the Nachiketa sacrifice. So Dick, now, now Nachiketa has the boon of, he's got immortality. His name will be renowned forever. Then here we come now to the heart of the kata because now Nachiketa pops the big question. It's not posed as a question, but that's exactly what it is. Nachiketa says to the king of death, when a person dies, there's this doubt. Some say that he exists, and others say he does not. This I should like to know, being taught by you. This is my third boon. And now we enter into a high-stakes game, because Yama wasn't expecting this boon, so Yama tried, I'm sorry, oof. Yama tries the quick brush off. He says, on this subject, even the gods had doubts. The subject is subtle and difficult to understand. Don't press me on this point, Nachiketa. Choose another boon. Now, we've already seen that Nachiketa has shraddha, that real faith and strength in himself, so that real boldness. And he also has a deep love of truth, so he won't be dissuaded. So he says to Yama, you said that even the gods had doubts on this subject and that it is not easy to understand. But another teacher like you cannot be found, and no other boon is equal to this. Now look at the wisdom of this boy at such a young age. Who is he asking? He's asking death. Death is the great teacher. Because it's often only in the face of death that we really start thinking about the meaning of life. It's only when we see a finality to it all that we say to ourselves, what is the point? In the face of eternity, our life is so tiny. Is it just an in and out burger? In and out and that's it? Is that the whole point? So look at the wisdom. Who is the greatest teacher? The greatest teacher is always the face of death. Where am I going? What's the point? So Yama now ups the stakes of the game. He is tries tempting the boy with desire. So just as Buddha and Jesus were tempted by desire, so Yama tempts Nachiketa with desire. So Yama offers Nachiketa sons and grandsons who live Shalak for 100 years, elephants, horses, herds of cattle. He says, choose a vast kingdom on earth. Choose wealth and a long life. Be the king of the whole earth. I will make you the enjoyer of all desires. Nachiketa doesn't even bother to respond. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he says, so Yama says, I will, give you, I will give you the power to enjoy what mere mortals cannot enjoy. Well, he's really upping the ante here because it's like, okay, if we have a scale of one to ten enjoyment, he says, oh, those are just people. You, I'll give you this much. You can have things that people cannot even enjoy. Think of that. 
So no response again. So Yama really decides to pull out all the stops. He says, celestial maidens with their chariots, musical instruments, such as mortals cannot enjoy, I shall give them to you and they shall serve you. But do not ask me about death. Now, Nachiketa remained totally unmoved by every single pleasure that Yama had to offer. He, so Nachiketa says to Yama, Oh, death, these pleasures endure only till tomorrow, and they only wear out the senses. Even the longest life is alpam, little. I love that word. He says, even the longest life is, is little. And the Sanskrit word alpam is so, it's just like, it's so pathetic. It's just so little and tiny. It's so unfair. So you give me a million years. So <laughs> what's that to eternity? He says, keep your horses, your dances, and the songs for yourself. And wealth, Nachiketa, says to death, can never make a person happy. It's like, that was said 2,000 years ago. Why don't we get it? <laughs> Do you want to tell my neighbors in Montecito that? <laughs> it's, like it's, they don't, it's like wealth, can't, even this boy can see that it doesn't make anybody happy. And it's important to remember here that Nachiketa is a young boy. He's not like a, an old man who's had everything else. I'm sick of it. He's like, he loves life because he wants to get out of there alive. He's kind. We see that the way that he's treated that with his father. He's got a lot of boldness and a lot of strength. But as much as he loves life, he loves truth more. And he's not going to desist from his questions. So he stands totally firm. Obviously, he's got a sense of humor if he's telling death to keep the dancing girls for himself. And Nachiketa stands firm. He says, tell me, O death, what there is in the great hereafter in which they have doubt. Nachiketa will not choose any boon but this. You've got to love the fact that this is in the third person. He's talking like Caesar. It's like, Caesar will not go. But it's like, but as Caesar was the ruler of a great kingdom, so is Nachiketa. Because Nachiketa has complete control of his mind and his senses. He is the total ruler of his own domain. He has complete strength in his own ability. He has no weakness. So he, too, is a great conqueror. And with Yama, and now Yama, the king of death, was pleased beyond measure with all of Nachiketa's responses, now begins to teach him the secret of immortality. Now, before we go into those teaching, I think it's really important for us to really think about how Nachiketa was able to pull this off. He was able to open the doors of immortality, which now Yama's going to teach him, only because he didn't want anything else. He had that one-pointed resolve, and that was the thing that allowed him to get through those doors because everything else was as dust to him. Nothing else mattered so that everything that could dissuade him, that would tempt him, that would be a spiritual obstacle to him, it's like, "Uh uh-uh, this is what I want. So for us to get those teachings for our spiritual life to begin, we have to have some of that resolve. It's like, this is what I want. And this is what the kata teaches us. And I love what Swami Swahanada had said, said about this. He's because a lot of us are tempted to think, well, you know, if I was granted those boons and I was given heaven, you know, I wouldn't go for heaven. I would want the truth too. But Swami Swahanada said, um, he said, people say that they will forgo the pleasures of heaven only because they have no idea what they are. If we were to open, go through a door and find all these pleasures that we can't even imagine, like the greatest music, the highest art, all these, would we have the character that Nachiketa has? 
to be able to turn, to our, turn our backs and say, uh-uh, I only want the truth. Whether these pleasures last for 100,000 years or not, I don't care. I only want the truth. In order to get where Nachiketa is, it's a lifetime of practice. It's a lifetime of disturbment and discrimination. So look how even Nachiketa's own father, who was a sage from a line of sages, look how he kind of got off the path there. So in fact, the, we get here a little backdoor warning. It's like, watch out. We always have to be asking ourselves the question, is this what I want? Am I really heading towards the goal that I want? So Nachiketa seems to understand that. He's mature beyond his years, and he knows that all pleasures have a beginning and an end. And we, too, have to kind of keep this in mind, that um, all pleasures, even if they're the highest refined pleasures, are pleasures. They won't bring us happiness forever, and they can't bring us peace, and they won't give us solace when life gives us a blow, which it inevitably will. So with this, seeing Nachiketa being the earnest student that he is, Yama begins to teach Nachiketa the secret of immortality. And he begins his teachings on what seems to be a really simple note, but it's more subtle than we think. Yama says, the good is one thing, and the pleasant is another. That seems obvious. Both of these lead to different ends, and both bind. Good befall those, befalls those who accept the good, or shreya. And those who choose the pleasant, preya, miss the goal. Now, preya means that which is pleasant. It's immediately attractive. And shreya is that which is ultimately beneficial. In other words, it seems kind of boring to begin with. So we tend to be more interested in preya. Preya is the kind of happiness that arises from sense pleasures. And those who remain just in preya sort of have a low level of existence. They could be higher sense pleasures, but it's still a line centered around sense pleasures of one variety or the other. Now, the first problem with preya is that it lies below ethics. You can't even have a society if everybody's working on the level of preya. If everybody just wants his or her own pleasure for that one thing, then you can't have a society. The whole point of society is deferred gratification. So even on society level, people who engage in just preya, it doesn't work. These people end up being a pain. But even from a selfish point of view, preya is a bad choice because all the happiness that we get in preya has a beginning and an end. It might be a long beginning and a long end, but it's always going to have a beginning and an end. Because no matter how, no matter how much chocolate you want and you love, the bar is going to finish and you're too sick to think about another one. No matter how much we love lattes, you can't do lattes forever. No matter how blonde bimbos are out there, they don't go on forever. All pleasures have a beginning and an end. And since pleasure is by nature temporary, that means in order to get the pleasure, they have to be repeated. So we have to repeat it again and again and again. And if nothing else, it just gets really boring. As Swami Prabhavanand used to say, it's the same old stuff. So if nothing else, it's just boring. So if we think of Shreya and Preya as being sisters at the prom, Shreya doesn't seem like the attractive date, you know. She's like the librarian with the braces, like, please. But Shreya has no makeup, no jewelry or clothes, and Preya is the one who's got the perfume and the clothes and seems like, oh, man, this is the easy date. I'm going to go and take her home. But it's actually the wrong choice because Shreya is the one that we need to take home because Shreya actually takes us to our home because our real home is the Atman. Our real home is the divine self within us. 
we get so lost and so beguiled by prayer that it's like we're intoxicated. It's like we have prayer. It's like we get these pleasures. It's like, it's like being drunk at the wheel. We start taking these detours and we're going all these exits and we're going in the wrong place. We can't get home because we took prayer home rather than Shreya. Shreya is the one we need to take home because Shreya will take us to the Atman, our true self within. Now, in order to choose Shreya over prayer, which isn't always such an easy thing to do, we need both foresight and farsight. We have to keep asking ourselves the question, what goal am I seeking here? What do I really want out of my life? Am I choosing temporary enjoyments that are eventually going to turn against me, that I'm going to regret later on? Or am I choosing something that will ultimately be beneficial to my spiritual life? We have to keep asking ourselves that, and that, that really mandates us to use both foresight and farsight, because we need both to be able to have the intelligence, the buddhi, to choose Shreya over Preya, which reminds me of a story. Once upon a time, there was a doctor, and he was a very, very good and brilliant doctor. He just graduated from medical school, so he went back to his village to practice medicine. Well, as luck would have it, his first patient died. Bad luck. Well, then his second patient died. Not so good. And then when the third patient died, no one would go and see him again. And he was just beside himself because he was a sincere man. He was well-trained. He was a good doctor. He cared for people. But no one would see him. And he didn't know what to do. And then he decided, you know, I'm, I'm just going to I'm just gonna have to invoke Yama. I have to talk to Yama about this. So he sat and meditated. He did great austerities. He sat under a tree. He fasted, taking neither food nor drink, and sat under a tree and sat and did japa of Yama. He was meditating with great earnestness and sincerity on Lord Yama, the king of death. So he's there, and Yama's like, oh, my God, I've got a devotee. I don't believe this. No one ever wants to see me. It's like, whoa, big time. So he goes down. It's like, my child, I'm greatly pleased with your devotion. I grant you a boon. And he said, oh, Lord Yama, obeisance to you. Accept my salutations. Lord Yama, please, I beg of you. I'm a doctor, but you're taking my patients. Please don't take my patients. <laughs> and Lord Yama says, well, you know, I'm sorry, but that is my job. You know, I, I am the Lord of death. And, um, and he said, but look, I am pleased with your devotion, and I will grant you this boon. Wherever you go to your patient, when you call, when they call you, you go. And if I'm at the foot of the bed, say, I'm too busy, I'm feeling not well today, I, you know, I, I really don't have time to deal with this. I'm feeling tired. Don't take the patient because no matter what you do, I'm going to take that person. If I'm at the head of the bed, no matter how sick that person appears, that person will live. And the doctor said, okay. So still no one would go to the doctor, but there was a patient that everyone had given up on. The doctor said, let me. He saw that Yama was at the head. He said, I will treat this patient. You know, right, I'll go. You can't do any worse than anything else. So he treated, and the patient recovered. Well, with that, the other hard cases came, and soon everybody wanted to go to the doctor because if he was, he was beginning to be very busy, but if he had enough time to treat you, by Lord, you were going to recover. And he was a very busy, busy doctor, and he was a good doctor. He was kind and compassionate and ethical. And for 30 years, his practice grew and grew. Then one afternoon, he talked to his receptionist and said, you know, I'm really feeling very tired. I'm going to go home and take, please cancel my afternoon appointments. 
So he went home and he took a nap. He opened his eyes and there at the foot of his bed was Yama. <laughs> and so the doctors turned like that and Yama's like, and realized the doctor had turned and he was now with the doctor's head. And so Yama went around and the doctor turned away the other way and he's like, okay. And so the Yama started going the other way. The doctor turned the other way and he's like, and this went around and around and around and around. Finally, after five minutes, Yama said, okay, okay, you win, you win. How did you do that? How, no human being can do that. How did you do that? And the doctor said, 30 years ago, I knew the day would come when you would appear at the foot of my dead. And every day for the past 30 years, I've been practicing spinning like a top just so I could deal with you when you came. Which means the doctor had foresight and farsight because he knew that Yama would come. Also, that means we also have to have foresight and farsight because Yama will indeed come. Will we be prepared? I mean, we're getting these messages from Yama all the time. This didn't just happen yesterday, folks. This <laughs> came all on its own. It's like when we get up from the chair, go, ah, involuntarily, and people say, what was that? That's a little message from Yama that we can't remember where we put the keys. These are all messages from Yama. We never know when Yama is going to greet us. And so thinking about Yama is a very good and wise thing to do because Yama teaches us the truth about life. Life is temporary. We always have to be ready for the great call. Now the path of Shreya has two levels. The path of the life of Dharma, and the life of righteousness, and the divine life, the spiritual life which leads up from that. And both are important because we can't go on that path of immortality unless we have the Dharmic life to begin with. Ethical living is at the root of a sincere spiritual life. And while ethics is not an end in itself or even the highest end, yet without ethics, one absolutely cannot move into a real spiritual life. And very significantly, it's here, right at the beginning of, of Yama's discussion on spiritual life, that he talks about ethics, where he talks about Shreya and Preya. It's very important that it's right at the beginning of a spiritual life, where we choose the good over the pleasant. Now, what happens to those who choose Preya? Yama says the hereafter never reveals itself to such deluded people. This world alone exists. There is no other, they think. And they fall again and again into my clutches. That is, they go round and around the wheel of birth and death because they seek nothing higher than sense pleasures. Now, what Yama says next is one of the most magnificent verses of the kata. He says, many there are who do not even hear of the divine self within. Many, though they hear of it, do not understand it. Wonderful is the person who speaks of it. Intelligent is the person who learns of it. And blessed is the person who, taught by a wise teacher, is able to understand it. Now, Yama here makes a point that is expounded upon again and again in the Hindu traditions, and that is the Atman cannot be known when it is taught by one who is ignorant. It's uh, Book learning is not enough. We can't just sit down with a book from the library and realize God. Religion, Yama says, the Atman is subtler than the subtlest. It cannot be known by reasoning. The Atman is comprehended when taught by another who has realized the truth. Because religion isn't taught, it is caught. It is a flame that is transmitted by another flame. And that's why we are so fortunate to be here. We are so fortunate to be part of this Vedanta Society Ramakrishna order. We have 
We have been so fortunate to be so close to the source. Our teachers come directly in such a sm short lineage from Ramakrishna and Holy Mother. It's like I cannot begin to believe how fortunate we are, and that ought to be part of our practice every day, is that incredible gratitude that we come from a line of illumined teachers, and they are available to us here. So now Nachiketa speaks up, and he asks to be taught further by Yama. Yama says, the goal which all Vedas declare, which all austerities aim, and desiring which people live a life of self-restraint, I will tell you briefly, it is Om. Now Yama's not kidding when he says, I tell you briefly. This was my question. It's like, what? Om? Isn't that, how can Om be a goal? Isn't, isn't that the method? And the point here is that Om isn't just any sound. It's Shabda Brahman. It's sound Brahman. Chakra says in his commentary on this verse that it is that which is meant by the sound om because the word and its meaning are inseparable just as Sri Ramakrishna speaks about fire and the power to burn or milk and its sweetness. You can't separate the sound of the mantra from its meaning. Now why is the syllable om so sacred and why does it have such significance? Now, the Mandukya Upanishad spends a good amount of time dealing with just this topic, and it says that the sound om is divided into four parts or matras, and that's like measures of, of time. And that consists of a, u, m, and the amatra, or the silent portion of the om. Now, the first three represents the states of existence, that is, waking, which is a, dreaming, u, and dreamlessly, or m. Now, the fourth measure, which is that silent portion, represents that transcendent state of Turiya. Now, the Turiya is beyond the states of waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep, but it's also its substratum. It's what gives it the reality. It's, um, it also represents that nature of pure awareness, the chit, which is the nature of the Atman. It's, it's, it's the silent witness of waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. So it's a very, very profound philosophy. So that when Yama says it is Om, we have a world of philosophy, a world of spiritual practice condensed into one syllable. Now, Yama tells Nachiketa, the syllable is indeed Brahman. The syllable is indeed supreme. It is the strongest support. It is the highest symbol. One who knows it is revered as a knower of Brahman. Now, knows it doesn't mean like knowing it the way we're talking about it here. It means experiencing the meaning. It means experiencing Brahman. It means experiencing what Om actually is. Now, as we can see, Yama is now moving into very practical instructions on his spiritual path. He says, the Atman is never born. It does not die. The Atman is neither cause nor effect because our mind starts going into causality there. Okay, what about, it just stops it right there. It is birthless, eternal imperishable. It is not killed when the body is killed. Again, we're reminded of the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Yama says, it is smaller than the smallest, greater than the greatest. And again, the Upanishad is kind of doing this to our rational mind. What? Smaller than smaller, greater. It's telling our rational mind, stop. It's like, it's like a koan that way. You can't experience it or know it through the rational mind. This Atman forever dwells in the hearts of all. When a person is freed from desire, and the mind and senses are tranquil. The aspirant beholds the majesty of Atman and becomes free from grief. It is such a wonderful passage. I, just to hear it is so inspiring. The majesty of the Atman 
and free from grief. I mean, how much grief do we all bear every day? How much grief are we just carrying around with us? Not, we start out with like those niggly worries at the back. Am I going to make it here? Is the car going to break down on the way here? Do I have enough gas? And it's like, okay, did I forget to turn off the gas? Then it goes into the, major, the, the real anxieties that we have. Will my husband leave me? Is my child addicted to drugs? These things, is, do, do, does my mother have Alzheimer's? Am I going to have Alzheimer's? What am I going to do with my disease? Who will support me? Who will take care of all these from these greater things to the, mar- the larger things of the loss and the grief that we have where we simply think we cannot survive because something so precious has been taken away from us. We don't know how we can even breathe because our sense of grief is so profound. And this says we behold the majesty of the Atman and we become free from grief. Imagine that state of utter freedom where we have of this, this experience of the Atman is so freeing and so total that we don't need anything on the outside. We're completely freed from that which causes us so much pain. Now, Yama tells Nachiketa that the Atman is difficult to attain, but still it can be realized. But it can't be through the study of the Vedas. Now, I love that because here's the Vedas saying, yeah, you can't get it through the Vedas. Leave it to the Hindu traditions <laughs> to be out front like that. It says, and it can't be known by intelligence. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't help. It might just lead you to be, have, be more egotistical. The Atman is attained by whom the Atman chooses. Now, depending on your commentator, this either means divine grace or self-effort or a combination thereof. But it's like you put in the effort. You just put in the effort. And now Yama brings up the obstacles that come up in our spiritual life. One who is not turned away from wickedness. Again, here we go from Shreya and Preya who is not tranquil and subdued, whose mind is not at peace, cannot attain the Atman. Why not? We're used to multitasking. Why can't I? Why can't I do it? Well, that's because if unless the senses are subdued, it's very hard to turn our backs on prayer. It's very hard. Because if the senses are going outside, the senses go to the sense objects, and then it's very hard to pull them back in again. It's very hard to, to turn our back on prayer. Now, Yama now comes up with one of the true signal points of the kata, and it's one of the most famed metaphors of Hindu literature, and that's that famous illustration of the chariot, which he compares to a human being. Yama says, Know the Atman to be the rider of the chariot and the body to be the chariot. Know the intellect, and by that we mean the buddhi. That's that decision-making faculty. Yes or no. That's the buddhi. That is um, the intellect. And the mind, that is the deliberative faculty, Yes, no, shall I do this? Okay, the, the deliberative faculty to be the charioteer, and the mind is the reins, okay? The sense organs are the horses, okay? That's the, the scent, the smell, taste, hearing, smelling, the mind, sight, all that. And the roads that they travel are the sense objects, okay? That's the, the chocolate, the hearing, ta- the, I'm sorry, the, the chocolate, the, all those things, the French fries, the blonde bimbos, everything out there that our senses are going to go to. Okay, that's where they are. He says when a person lacks discrimination and their mind is unrestrained, the senses are unmanageable, like the vicious horses of a charioteer. It's like the horses are just taking things away. The senses are going towards their object, and it's like we're sitting in there going, okay, don't know, I don't know what's going on. But when one has discrimination and the mind is restrained, the senses are under control like the well-trained horses of a charioteer. One whose intellect, that is the booty, that's our decision-making faculty, lacks discrimination, 
whose mind is unrestrained never reaches the goal and remains in the cycle of birth and death. That's because the, we're letting the horses do whatever they want, and the horse is going to go wherever they want, not where we want. One whose intellect is endowed with discrimination, whose mind is restrained, attains the goal, and having reached it, is forever freed from the cycle of birth and death. One who has discriminating intellect, again the booty, for a charioteer, and a controlled mind for reins, reaches the end of the journey, the supreme state of the all-pervading Brahman. So we understand here we're all on a journey. The kata lets us know we're all going on this journey. Now we often think of ourselves as the chariot, but we have to keep reminding ourselves we're not the chariot, we're the rider of the chariot. We, we somehow misidentify ourselves with a chariot. We think we're the Buick and not the driver of the Buick. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves of our true identity. And we the remind ourselves is like we do have control of the reins. There are reins. They're not that charioteer over there's reins. There are reins. No one else is going to control it but us. So if we want to go where we want to go, we have to control the reins and deal with the horses. And we can have to do this fairly early on in our journey because we can't do it when the first two horses are off the cliff and decide, oh, that was a bad idea. I'm going to change my mind. Too late. You have to do it fairly early on to let the horses know who's the boss. We're the alpha, not the horses. So if we're on this journey, where are we going? And that's the big question that we have to keep asking ourselves. Where are we going? Now, according to the kata, we're, our, the end of our journey is Brahman. Brahman is the supreme goal. And so Yama exhorts Nachika to actually do something. No, don't just listen. Don't just ask the question and get an answer. Just do something about it. Be, because he's been given this wonderful boon. And Yama declares one of Kata's most famous verses, that you all know, Utishtata jagrata prapyavaran nibodata Arise, awake, enlighten yourself by approaching the great teachers. Like the sharp edge of a razor is the path and difficult to attain. So Yama's saying, okay, get to work. I've given you the teachings, get to work. Human life is short and death tells that to us all. Human's life's short, get to work. We, we know what we need to do, we just have to do it. So Yama continu- continues by teaching Nachiketa the, the secret of yoga. He says, when the sense organs, the mind, and the intellect cease to be active, that is called the highest state. Now, for us in the West, this is completely counterintuitive because we think what we're in the highest state is when we've got, okay, we've got the computer on, we're texting, we've got the radio and television going, we're talking on the phone, and we're looking out the window at the same time. So we think that's where we're really on. You know, we've got the latte down, we're highly caffeinated, we think, oh man, I can do it all. Now, this is a spiritual disaster, according to Yama. This is exactly what we shouldn't be doing. This is not the highest state. It's the highest distracted state. And this is really bad for our spiritual life. Because our outgoing senses, which is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, all that, the restless mind and the intellect have to be brought in together. They have to be indrawn, and they have to be quieted. And it's the state of quiet equilibrium that's the highest state. Because all the forces of our being, all that power that we put out, when it's put inside and quieted, becomes focused. And this inevitably leads to the realization of the Atman, because as Yama says, the Atman shines forth by its own light. The he shining, everything shines. So it's like the Atman is that light of consciousness that shines forth when we 
through our will control everything or through the grace of God, the Atman can shine forth by its own light. Thus we learn from Yama that yoga is not what we do at the, at the Y, it's not the dawn, down, down dog, it's firmly holding back the senses from their objects. Yoga is uniting our lower self with a higher self. It's realizing our identity with the Atman. So then what happens? Once we've succeeded in our goal of, of practicing yoga, the real yoga, what happens? Yama says, when all the desires that dwell within the human heart cease, then the mortal becomes immortal and attains to Brahman here. When the knots of the heart are cut asunder, then the mortal becomes immortal. And the last two verses of the kata are as important as everything that precedes it. He says that being the size of a thumb, and it's important he gives us that because it gives us meditation instruction. It's like, how do you think of, okay, here it is. He's giving meditation instruction. That being the size of a thumb, the inner self dwells forever in the heart. One must separate the Atman from the body with steadiness, with a concentrated mind, as one separates the tender stalk from a blade of grass. Know the Atman to be pure and immortal, yea, pure and immortal. And now we come to that critical last verse. Thus Nachiketa, having received this wisdom taught by the king of death, and in the entire process of yoga, became free from impurities and from death, and became united with Brahman, so shall it be also with any other who knows the inmost self. Now these are stirring, they're deeply inspiring words, and what's the most important part of this whole thing is it's not just Nachiketa's story, it's our story. It's our whole story here. It's so shall it be with any other, the Upanishad tells us. So this is our process too. If we put in the effort, if we put in the sincerity and the longing in that one pointed direction that Nachiketa have, we too shall attain the goal. We can attain the goal of life, the union with Brahman then we won't have any more questions, big or small. We won't need to ask directions. We won't need to where to ask where to go. 